Hi folks, it's Future Nat. While editing this episode, I realized that we had neglected to record a content warning. This episode deals very frankly with the subject of suicide, uh, specifically queer suicide. And so whenever that comes up, we like to remind our listeners that if you are struggling with suicidal ideation, you're not alone. There are resources available to help you. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is now 988. It's a three-digit number, easy to remember. And if you're one of our younger listeners, you can also reach out to the Trevor Project. Their number is 866-488-7386. Again, that's 866-488-7386. Let's pack and get out of here. Let's take the train tomorrow. The train to where? I don't know, there must be some place we can go. I don't know where it is. They know about us. We've been famous. But this isn't a nuisance, and they say we've done. Other people haven't been destroyed by it. They're the people who believe in it, who want it, who've chosen it for themselves. We aren't like that. That must be very different. We don't love each other. We've been close to each other. Of course, I've loved you like a friend. The way thousands of women feel about other women. You were a dear friend who was loved, that's all. Certainly there can be nothing wrong with that. It's perfectly natural that I should be fond of you. Why, we've known each other since we were 17, and I always thought that... Why are you saying all of this? This is Snails and Oysters. And welcome to Snails and Oysters, the bi-weekly, bi-coastal, bi-sexual movie podcast. I'm Nat Roberts. And I'm Allie Rogers. And you said you had something for banter. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> um, I do, I do. I just, for some reason, I expected, like... No, 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 no. Here, I can, I can, I can give you something better than that. I'm sorry. I really sold you down the river with that one. <laughs> I'll go, okay. I'll go. <laughs> um, well, I'll just, uh, I'll... I'll pretend you just said it. I'm Allie Rogers, and uh, um, and hey, cats and kittens! I hope you're surviving out there with this September heat wave. Wait, is there actually a September heat wave? I mean, there is in LA. I don't know how are things in New York. It's very fall. The fall vibes oh. are out. My jean jacket's out. Oh, I envy you. So, Nat, I wanted to tell you about a new Instagram <laughs> that was sent to me. Um, yes, that is totally worth following okay it's called um bisexual drinks <laughs> <laughs> wait let me find this and it's called it's the the it's literally just bisexual <laughs> sending in the number of drinks that they have oh at any my given God. time it says it's a collaborative safe space for bisexuals and alleys out here and allies, not allies, out here carrying. Well, I, I would say Ally is included in this. Yeah, carrying and are vibing with 
never too many bibs. Yeah. So I, I love this. I love it. Oh it's my God. Really good. So for, for the listeners, one of the most recent photos is uh, someone drinking what looks like a Bloody Mary, a glass of orange juice, possibly a mimosa coffee with cream and sugar <laughs> and there's like an empty glass yeah. already next to them i like the one below it too that's uh iced coffee somehow a lacroix that you just know has been sitting there for 24 hours and an yes. empty water glass yes and, a mug. and two wait this picture just and two empty warm. seltzers in the back jesus it's seltzers all the way down <laughs> yeah uh how many drinks do you have in front of you right now Oh, okay. Not as many as I might normally. I'm actually really sad. I left my 100 milliliter or 1000 milliliter water bottle at a bar last night. Oh no. So I have my pathetic like 300 milliliter water bottle. Oh, scrawny, barely a sip. Barely a sip. And then an empty uh, coffee cup from this morning. When did water bottles become a thing again? I don't know. Hydration has always been cool in that. (laughs) I just love the idea that like the bisexuals are hydrated absolutely and caffeinated clearly and drunk <laughs> yeah <laughs> actually here let's get some asmr going I'll, I'll take a take a drink out of my water wow that's gonna be audio poison when i edit it later <laughs> hi this is future net and uh it was and it's a good thing that we are hydrated today because today's guest is my former coworker, Annette Rainey. Uh, she is an assistant editor and editor in the Los Angeles area. Uh, and she brought us today's gem of a film, The Children's Hour. Yeah, I am indebted, indebted to her. I don't first. think that's too strong a word to use at all. I think yeah. that's the perfect term, yeah. indebted yeah. Uh, to, to Annette for introducing us to the Children's Hour because this really is a, a gorgeous film. I, I think I forget if um, I said this already on the podcast, but I fully thought this was going to be a children's movie. <laughs> you did say that. <laughs> it's so not. Oh, it's so, so not. <laughs> but it's really good. It definitely, there's, it definitely has, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's good in a bad way, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's a bit like a Douglas Sirk movie where like the melodrama is really heightened, but it's serving a point. It is like yeah. getting at a political message that was controversial at the time. I'm going to go ahead and use like pretend that we're like in a in a seminar class in college and say that it is problem. It has some problematic moments, but oh, that totally. I really enjoyed watching it. And I think. Yeah. And and you know what? I think those problems actually led to some of the most fruitful parts of the conversation that we're about to play. Spoiler alert, we actually already recorded and Ali and I just do this dog and pony show t- for your entertainment. <laughs> but um, when we did talk with Annette, it, uh, you know, th- those creative and ideological discrepancies between this film and today and even the gay movement at the time led to some, of, I think, some of the, the best parts of this conversation, this this episode. Children's Hour is a 1961 drama directed by William Wyler and based upon the 1934 stage play of the same name by Lillian Hellman. Interestingly enough, Wyler had previously adapted the film uh, back in the 1940s, but remade his own movie uh, so that he could return the production to its original plot. Um, and what is that plot? No, What um, is that plot, Allie? Tell me. The film is about um, college besties. I would call them besties. I would certainly call them besties. Yeah. Martha Doby and Karen Wright. 
um, played by, hold on, Karen is played by Audrey Hepburn and Martha is played by Shirley MacLaine. Um, and they are like happily running a little boarding school for girls. Not a big school. It's just like a mm-hmm. big house. Just a big old house um, in New England somewhere it looks like. Um, yeah. And it's got like a cozy vibe. Like yeah. Martha's aunt teaches music. Um, and uh, and Karen's fiance, uh, Dr. Joe Carden, played by James Garner, will stop in for dinner at the end of a long day. Yeah, on the surface, the beginning, it's like, wow, what a cozy, cozy cute little life. Yeah. <laughs> but that's about to change. And then <laughs> their lives changed forever when uh, one of Martha and Karen's more troublesome students, Mary, uh, tries to avoid being punished for a lie she told by inventing another lie. She tells her doting grandmother that uh, Karen and Martha have been in an quote-unquote unnatural relationship for some time at the school. Uh, the Because of a miscommunication with Martha's aunts, the grandmother believes these suspicions have been confirmed and begins to spread the rumor of this relationship to all of the other parents and guardians at the school. Yeah, and really quickly, this rumor, I mean, it just destroys the school. There's like a really harrowing moment where the the girls are just getting pulled out one by one. Martha and Karen have no idea why. No one tells them. Finally, this father takes pity on them, tells them, and they actually go directly to um, Mary's grandmother to confront her. Um, Which is made equally awkward because uh, she is Joe's aunt. She is Joe's aunt. Joe is there. He's taking their side. And then they insist that they'll go to court. And we never see that. Yeah, we 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 cut ahead a few months after they've lost after Karen and Martha have lost their suit against the grandmother um and are basically living in solitary solitary confinement in their own home where their only visitors are Joe and a creepy grocery store delivery man and any neighborhood roughnecks who feel like gawking outside the school. Um finally you know, the, the the pressure has built up to such a point that Martha actually admits to Karen that even if the rumor wasn't true, she is in love with Karen. And you'd kind of think that would be like the climax of the film. But then we get another really important confrontation, which happens when Mary, uh, a kind of Mary is forced to confess because another girl at the school has confessed. And so the grandmother actually shows up to Karen and um, admits that she's been tricked. And are they officially exonerated? Uh, It's implied that they will be. She says she's going to go to the judge and have him overturn his previous verdicts. Right, right. Um, um, but at this point, like, their lives have already been destroyed. And Karen tells her, like, hey, I, it, you know, it's great you want to feel better, but I don't owe you d- a damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we get the really tragic moment at the end Martha has like gone to a room to be alone and somehow like I think Karen almost like senses it that something is wrong yeah I think it's their their aunt her aunt has come back and is looking for her and realizes she's locked herself in her room right right and, and she's she's done that because she has killed herself yeah and um the movie ends with her funeral yeah 
Um, Martha's funeral and Karen walking away alone after breaking off her relationship with Joe. Yeah, it's so it's yeah, it's a film with a lot of twists and turns It is a tragedy, I think. On release coming just at the close of the Hays Code era in Hollywood, The Children's Hour was not a major financial success, but it did find a lot of critical praise uh, going on to receive five Oscar nominations. And to help us discuss this film, uh, of course, we are joined by the one and only Annette Rainey. Well, today we are thrilled to be joined on the Snails and Oysters podcast by Annette Rainey. Annette, welcome to the show. Yes, welcome, Annette. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for being here. As we probably said in the introduction, Annette and I are former co-workers. Um, and yeah. Yeah, you reached out to me uh, and and kind of hounded me. Like, you you actually threatened to beat <laughs> me up if I didn't let you on the show. Is that correct? I mean, <laughs> in not in specific terms because that's just not smart because then, like, you can just take it to the cops and it's automatically it's incriminating. It's no paper trail. I'm yeah. very into subtle threats. So I'm very glad that you picked up on the threat of bodily harm, but for the record, (laughs) no implicit harm intended. Yeah, yeah. I can't. There's no paper trail. I can't pin it on you. You know, you're you're like Michael Corleone. Um, I mean, you can try, but you're you're not going to win, and you're going to kind of look silly. I was not threatened, and to be honest, I'm feeling a little jealous. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I have your phone number. I can send you a subtle threat if you would like. (laughs) Oh my God, would you? That's so nice of you. Yeah, I just want to make sure everyone feels included, you know, in all ways. But you know what's really threatening? What? Friendship between women. Uh, That was a sick segue, Allie. Honestly, segue of the year. (laughs) So, yes, today we are talking about the Children's Hour. Uh, Now, Annette, you suggested – I had heard of this movie before and had it on the list – but uh, whenever someone's coming on the show, we'll usually just ask what they want to talk about. So you you suggested the Children's Hour. When did you first see this movie? Like, what's your history with it? So I first saw this movie in, I think, my last year of undergrad. So that would have been 2016, 2017. And I was in this incredible class um, about gender and sexuality in media that is taught by the incredible Martha Lawson. And she is like Shout a out Martha. She's a powerhouse in the industry because um, she does a yearly study called the Celluloid Ceiling, and it uh, investigates the number of women on screen as well as in key roles oh, in I've, film in the top 500 grossing. Films I've of read the, year. the Celluloid Ceiling that uh, like in previous years. That's fascinating. I didn't realize she was. Yeah. that's so cool. Wait, are yeah, you guys both NYU? No. No, I, I, no, uh, Martha Lawson. I was about Lawson. to be like, that's illegal. We can't have two of them on this podcast. <laughs> no, I am, unfortunately, a film school kid, but not NYU. They, mm-hmm. uh, very kindly not were, NYU. <laughs> they were very kindly like, we're not interested in you. And I was like, that's fair. Thank you. Goodbye. Scandal, um, scandal. No, I'm, I studied with her at San Diego State University. Nice. Where, nice. where she does the, the studies and... She's incredible. Adore her. So inspiring. And in her (laughs) class, we always have uh, a project in which you write an essay and then do a presentation on it. And you pick the movie. And when I was doing research, I I don't even remember what movie I was originally trying to do, but I just kept seeing the children's hour come up in Mm. certain searches. So I was like, oh, there's plenty of research on this. I'll write about that. And I didn't really know anything about it. And then 
because it's an older movie, it, it was harder to find. Like, mm-hmm. I had to buy a DVD of it. I couldn't just stream it or rent it, that sort of thing. So I was like, fuck it, I'll just buy it. And watching it was such a big moment for me. Yeah. That, like, it to me, it's such a beautiful film. And it it has such interesting storytelling that I don't see done in modern films anymore. But, like, it's just so heartbreaking mm. and unabashedly so. It is yeah. so heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. It really is. Yeah. Now, uh, this was my first time seeing it. Allie, was it your first time as well? Mm-hmm. What, did, what first impressions? What did you, how do you feel about it? I truly have had such a strong reaction. So uh, I started watching it and um, as like, and I was trying, I, I started watching it in the morning and then I was babysitting for a friend. Um, and so I was like, I'll pause and finish it later. But I was so antsy to keep watching. Like it really sucked me in that I literally parked the kid in front of Mario Kart <laughs> and, and like snuck into my room. I was like, I'm going to watch 10 more minutes and then I'll go check on him. Um, <laughs> so like I was really, really just like drawn in. And, and one of the reasons I was really drawn in is I've been going through a really intense, like Regency period mm-hmm. mm. and like reading. Cause I, watched the second season of Gentleman Jack, which led me to reading two biographies mm-hmm. of Anne Lister. Um, mm-hmm. And in both of the biographies of Anne Lister, the, the case that this film is based on comes up. Oh, fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, in like Regency England, it you like could be executed and men were executed yeah. for sodomy. But um there wasn't any equivalent law for women. And this case, because the judge in this case originally in the 1800s basically said there's like no crime here. Like it doesn't exist. Like even if it were true, it doesn't exist, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And th- this, this real life event for the audience is um, it's actually very similar. It's two school teachers in Scotland in the 19th century, Jane Preary and Marianne Woods were, accused by a student of an inappropriate sexual relationship with each other. And it was actually the student's grandmother who used her influence to spread these rumors around town, which effectively closed the school. Um, so yeah, that the, the, this, this story is based on that real life incident. Right. Yeah. So when I was watching, I was like, I was, I, I thought it was like perfect timing because I've just been reading about it over and over mm-hmm. again by reading these biographies. But then towards the second half of the film, I honestly hated the film by the end. I was so I felt so betrayed um, by the end, by what happens to Martha. Mm. And I feel I I totally see the bisexual reading of the film. Um, I mean, I can see queerness anywhere. Like I'm (laughs) I'm like I'm a devoted gayler who thinks that Taylor (laughs) Swift is potentially queer. Um, but I also think there's it's very easy to walk away from this film with like, I don't know, seeing being I don't know. I just I feel really mm. like all stirred up about it. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from. I can see where Annette's coming from, too. I I, I would say I'm sort of in the middle between you two where it, it clearly is a very effective film. Like it is yeah. really well paced. It gets you to invest mm-hmm. in these characters really effectively. And of course, Audrey Hepburn. And Shirley MacLaine are both just so lovable instantly Mm -hmm. um, in any role, really, but particularly these two roles. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's it's melodrama done well. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I do, I do, yeah, like I do feel a certain push and pull as to how the movie ends because, you know, on the one hand, yes, the the one explicitly queer character played by Shirley MacLaine uh, dies by suicide. And the ambiguously queer Audrey Hepburn survives, which could be seen as sort of the, the first instance of the barrier gaze trope. However, at the same time, I also know that this film was made in 1961. The director, William Wyler, had actually tried to adapt it once before mm-hmm. in 19 in the 1930s and had to severely change the plot. They made it a love triangle. Yeah, a straight love triangle instead of a queer accusation. So the whole thing, to me, would just fall apart. Yeah. And so the only reason he was able to do this remake... Uh, is because the Hayes Code had started, just barely started to loosen its grip on American filmmaking. Like most scholars would say that its decline in power started in 1960 when this film would have entered production. Yeah, but this film is still, it's still so heavily yeah. influenced by the Hayes Code. Absolutely. And I think that leads to, to some of the most like intelligent, ways of delivering information without the audience hearing it. Exactly, yeah. And That's I, the, yeah, creativity within limitations. Oh, I fucking love it. Yeah. So knowing yeah. knowing that context, I'm inclined to be sympathetic because it's like to do any sympathetic portrayal of a queer character, an explicitly queer character, uh, in 1961 was like skirting the law in some ways mm-hmm. where it was like a very risky decision for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, like, you know, yeah. Not you, you and I talked about how uh, the play, because it's yes. based off of a play by Lillian Hellman. A 1934 play. Yeah, was cutting edge because it dealt with homosexuality, and homosexuality on stage was illegal, and, like, saying anything about homosexuality was illegal, but it captured people's attention so vividly that they let it slide. So, like, from the, the get-go, this movie, or this story was pushing boundaries within the art, like artistic space in order to tell a very complicated story. But that, I mean, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily like, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's difficult to, to balance, like giving the film credit for its period and uh, still viewing it with like a, a willingness to like critically appraise what it is really saying. So it's, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a really rich vein to get into. So Ali, why don't you talk a little more about that feeling of betrayal that you, you express like with the ending? Yeah. I think I just felt very betrayed by um, Karen's response to Martha's coming out. Mm. Um, and I think, I think it felt, I felt that it was so, I I mean, like Martha's coming out is so tragic. It's so heartbreaking. It's It's really like, it's really raw and, Mm -hmm. and it's really like well done throughout the film because especially from like a contemporary viewing point, it's so easy to see that she's queer Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like throughout the whole film. You're like, yeah, you're being like jealous and weird. (laughs) Like her, her whole, the first thing I thought about you when I saw you was what a pretty girl. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. And so it's, it's really beautifully done then when she kind of confesses it. And I think I felt betrayed because I feel like it's too easy to walk away from this film and see it as, 
and and may, and maybe like walk away thinking that Karen mm. is straight. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I do, and I think I think it's partly at least product uh, the the product of that Hayes Code influence where Karen, the, it was one of the mandates of the code was that anybody who you know committed an unnatural quote unquote act mm-hmm. would you know either be jailed or punished or killed mm-hmm. by the end of the film yeah. and so for Karen to survive unharmed at least physically unharmed it couldn't be explicit that she was also queer but i guess i guess the other thing cuz i like i said i'm i'm very i see the queer reading but i read a quote from and you guys might have read it too i think it was Shirley McLean mm. it was or it was someone who had participated in the film saying that like they never talked about it even. Yeah, that's Shirley McLean. Yeah, right. In, in, in the celluloid closet, I believe she she said like we right. just didn't discuss whether or not they were gay. Yeah, and that's what's hard for me. It's like like I'm I'm very sympathetic to making a film around those codes and what would maybe need to be done mm-hmm. to have like like the level of silence that you would actually need to even have like a queer character survive mm. till the end of the film and not be jailed but i guess i i feel a little like well if they never even talked about it behind the scenes it's really hard for me to know what the message is and when it feels ambiguous i guess i feel just a little hurt by yeah like her suicide is so tragic and it feels so unnecessary unnecessarily tragic and it feels very like i don't know it it kind of then just becomes a morality play about lying Mm. (laughs) you know yeah Um, so that's where that's where my betrayal comes in i'm just like i wanted martha to live and and thrive i i completely know what you mean like it it really is one of those scenes where it's um like annette said this is a melodrama done well and that is sort of part of it is like this character, like, you know, suicide is often used for dr- heightening the dramatic tension of a film. Yeah. Uh, or as like a, a tragic conclusion to a story. And sometimes it can feel like, was it just that you couldn't think of another resolution? Um, or were you required to have this resolution? Yeah. At the same yeah. time, it reminds me actually of um, Double Indemnity, the Billy Wilder film. For those of you who who don't know, the film is the the film's narrator, and this isn't really a spoiler, is a murderer <laughs> and an adulterer. <laughs> and this is a spoiler, but the movie came out decades ago. And come on, you gotta He's get a on lovely this. man. He's a lovely man. He's a very sympathetic villain in the mode of film noir. And in the original script, the film ended with a scene of him going to the gas chamber and being executed for murder. Mm. Uh, but Billy Wilder cut that. And instead just ended it with him being captured and collapsing from his wounds as a way of like not kind of sparing, kind of sparing him or at least not reveling in his capture and defeat. And I think that this is in some ways very similar where because of the codes and mandates and cultural expectations of the time, the filmmaker couldn't let Martha be happy or else they would be, you know, in whatever sort of hot water or even not get the film released at all. Right. And so within that context, they make her as sympathetic as possible. You know, she yeah. her her coming out speech is so beautiful and mm-hmm. so heartbreaking that it's been forced rather than chosen. Yeah. And she talks about how like dirty she feels for it. Like she calls herself dirty. Yeah. And the internalized homophobia is just horrifying and real. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. clear that we're meant to empathize with her. Not 
like, oh, poor girl, she's gay, but oh, this poor woman is just in love and she lives in a world where that isn't possible. Yeah. Um, so I do, I do, I do definitely relate to that feeling of betrayal, Allie. I, I don't know that there is a simple, like, yes, no, good, bad answer mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. So I, I completely understand feeling betrayed by it. To me, mm-hmm. Karen's reaction to Martha's coming out is one of fear, not disgust. Mm. Mm-hmm. So never during her coming out is she ever like, you are dirty. You're right. Yeah. You shouldn't feel yeah. this way. She says like, oh, you're tired. Yeah, you don't, don't say it. want to get into this. Like she's in a lot of ways trying to protect them. And mm-hmm. all throughout, like even after the reveal, she goes, we should leave. We should yeah. go together. And it's yeah. still this like moment of like compassion and unity. And it's not something that we would see today because, you know, thankfully we've, move to a better place with, you know, coming out and accepting of queer identities. But at that time, like, if people knew that there was even an ounce of truth to what happened, yeah, like, everything was done. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, it became yeah. a death sentence. That That is one thing that's really well illustrated in the film is the danger that they're in, especially in that yeah. final act where they're sort of trapped in this house and they can't go out. I, I think yeah. um, particularly I'm thinking of the scene where they say, you know what, we're going to go on a walk and if we see anyone, we see them and it doesn't matter. And they get one step out the door and a truck full of men stops on the road outside and just point at the school and talk and watch them until they go back inside and then they drive away. And I have to say, I think it's one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen in a film. Just because it's really And creepy. it's so quiet. Like nothing I was set. just about to say, it's completely silent i think even the there's no music for sure and i think even the noise bed is dropped out for that scene and it's it's so quiet it's terrible i'm getting like chills just remembering it i was so scared um just knowing and then someone breaks in effectively right effectively the grocery delivery guy yeah yeah just like walks in to stare at the show yeah yeah so like i can i completely understand why people are uncomfortable with how karen reacts Mm -hmm. but especially having seen it multiple times now, because I think I was closer to how you were feeling, Allie, the first time I saw it. Um, But I think having seen it multiple times now, I see the nuance of Karen being so scared. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is after she told Joe to leave. Mm -hmm. And so any societal or physical protection that they got from Joe is gone. Mm -hmm. And it's just them against the world. There's and, not even a like a marriage of convenience cover, you know, where it's like, yeah. well, she got married, it's all fine. Yeah. And I think I think that situation in and of itself is a big current to why people could read Karen as as bisexual. Right. Because she has Joe and he yeah. is supporting them throughout this experience. And at the end, she's the one that ends it. Yeah. And yeah. still asks Martha to run away with her to elope that there has to be somewhere where they can be safe. And that's something they said, like she says, is like there has to be somewhere where we're safe. Yeah. And there's this certain degree of inclusion in that language that there's, there's already an homage to her knowing that Martha feels that way for her. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so I think, I think the bisexual reading of, of Karen is definitely heavy nuance. Like I, I don't, I don't go into this conversation being like, if you don't see it, then you're, you're blind. It's not. And I think this is more a product of the codes and the script, but I think, I think the tension that I feel mm. is that like earlier, Nat, you were saying like, it's impossible to hear Martha's speech and like not empathize with her. Mm. But I actually don't know if like a truly homophobic person watching this film like, I, I guess I feel complicated that I feel like if you're, you know, maybe like a very traditionally Christian homophobic person and you watch this film, I wonder if you walk away being like, what an amazing story about how lying is bad. Yeah. And also being queer is clearly bad. Still you wrong. know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, yeah, see what I mean. that's yeah. like the anxiety that I feel because I think you can see Karen as a hero in the end almost, but more as a hero because she stood by her friend, and then she gets to walk away with her head held high, everyone knowing that she was right and she was innocent, mm. you know? Well, well, I think, to me, the last scene is exceptionally powerful, and I think mm-hmm. it holds the meaning of the film being a condemnation. Uh, why do I feel like I fucked up that word? No, you said it right. No, you didn't. Okay, <laughs> I said it, and I was like, mm, that's wrong. It's sort of like when you write house and you're like, why is there a you? Yeah. Um, but to me, that scene is, is a combination of society, not yeah. of Karen or Martha. Because Mrs. Hilford comes by and she makes this apology and tries to, like, buy their uh, forgiveness. forgiveness. Yeah. And this is after Martha came out to Karen. And Karen yeah. says, we don't want anything from you. Yeah. And it's still that united front. And... You know, when Karen finds Martha, her oh Martha delivery mm-hmm. gives me chills every time. Like it's so emotional but restrained, like that numbness that comes from loss. Mm-hmm. And Karen at the end does the ceremony with uh Martha's aunt. Mm-hmm. And walks away and refuses to give anyone any sort of forgiveness. And that's yeah. the only reason any of them are there is that they're guilty and they yeah. want that to be wiped clean. And Karen grabbing a white flower, a symbol of purity, yeah. and marching past them, refusing to give them the time of day and, you know, ignoring Joe. It could have been so easy for her to walk over and hug mm, him and find comfort and with him. they're reunited and it's and, yeah. Hollywood But ending. instead, she walks away from everyone because yeah. society failed them. And this story is a condemnation of the methods in society by which we out people, literally in the queer sense, but also just anyone who's other. Yeah. It automatically becomes this mob sensation. Yeah. And so with Karen, like the final shot being Karen with this, smile on her face of like to me it reads as understanding mm-hmm. finally something about herself as well as like her place in society and it's just it's such a powerful way to end the movie for me especially yeah. on later viewings that she is alone and it's heartbreaking and yeah. she 
if you read it, like, regardless of how you read it, queer or not, she buried someone she loved. Yeah. Definitely. And Definitely. It's, it's not saying, like, it's not saying bury your gaze in the sense that Martha should have died. Mm-hmm. It's bury your gaze in the sense that what led Martha to the point where she felt she had no other option. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That reminds me of uh, some uh, a sort of idea that comes up a lot on this show is the idea of patterns and where a particular mm-hmm. piece of media fits into a larger pattern. And mm-hmm. often it's, you know, something like the talented Mr. Ripley way back in episode one, where as an individual portrayal, it's not that it's problematic. It's that as part of a larger pattern, it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that this movie in some ways is the reverse, where if you look at this individual piece of media, you can see the problems to a certain extent. Um, you know, that Martha dies, that Karen doesn't explicitly say something. But if you look at it as part of the larger context of its era and what was common, even for, you know, films that weren't trying to condemn homosexuality, but were still following the status quo, to make this film that goes so sharply against the grain is really you know, it, it's not an A for effort situation, but it is very brave. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so as part of that larger context, it becomes a – I'm inclined to look more kindly on it, I guess is the, the point. I just think for the time period of the story itself, Martha would never be happy or feel safe because mm-hmm. of how she was, you know – the internalized homophobia and everything that she's dealt with. Like, I think for the time period of the actual story, it would make it difficult for it to ever have a happy ending for the couple, which is heartbreaking and it's disgusting. But I think if it were something where they both profess love to each other or even something more subtle than that, Mm -hmm. I I feel like it, it would be a bit revisionist. Mm. yeah 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 it's funny like earlier when we were saying it's it's about how like poorly society treats treats others and can have this mom mentality i was like this is what everyone on twitter needs to watch (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah i mean i also i feel like baby gays need to watch this because you know the the generation below us fortunately are growing up in such a more accepting Mm. society and yeah we still have so much more to go but like we're miles ahead that they do not understand most of the time the history of the lgbt community like the AIDS crisis is barely taught in school Mm. stonewall Mm. is somewhat mentioned but not really well known and heavily sanitized and yet people never talk about how you know pride was started by three trans black women throwing bricks at cops it's always like but can corporations put a rainbow on it? So this <laughs> this movie really is this little time capsule, and it sh- it shows the heartbreak that's the roots of, of the modern American LGBT community. Mm. That you know you part of part of seeing the growth that we've had is seeing how bad it was then, and I think there's a certain lack of like education amongst younger queers on that front Mm -hmm. i would say i feel like there's a general lack of education period on that front in many ways like it's 
it's part of, and and that is not accidental. It is that the oh the, god no yeah not that I'm not that you were saying it is but you know it is like enforced Stop ignorance. Stop putting words to, in my yeah, mouth now. Sorry. <laughs> um, but and I think I think it's uh, it's it's particularly relevant to watch today because mm-hmm. of the ways things haven't changed. Um, you know, I yeah. think there is a direct line from Mrs. Tilford's gossip to something like a "Don't Say Gay" bill, where. You know, uh, Mrs. Telford, in one of the most contemporary lines in the film says, you know, it's not for me to say what someone does in private, but when children become involved, you know, I have an obligation. Um, Yeah. And it's it's exactly the same mentality that any queer person is inherently sexual and are therefore inappropriate for any proximity to children. And I think something that's so nuance and complex about the movie is Mary gets the idea that they are in a relationship completely on her own. Yeah. The child already like knew about lesbians, queerness and sexuality to it, to an extent, like they did not bring it up themselves. Like the kid already knew. So like, I actually think it's very heavily implied that the book that she's reading early on in bed yeah. is potentially a book that contains something like that. Like um, smutty, yeah. yeah. It's a smutty book. Yeah, yeah, I got the sense that it was smut and that it might be of like a slightly queer nature. Yeah, I yeah. would not be surprised. It's it's interesting. Or that there's like yeah. queerness there, you know? Yeah, or at least it's explained that it exists or something. Yeah, and so... I, I actually I'm glad you brought up uh, Mary because I would love to talk a little bit about her characterization, her character, and her function in the film. Because I actually mm-hmm. I I really liked this film even on a first viewing. But one of the weaknesses I saw is that this entire thing sort of hinges on what Mary says up until the end. It's like mm-hmm. once she admits she was lying, then the truth comes out and everybody believes it. Whereas actually in the real case. As we mentioned, uh, Annette had more information than I had that the the judge just said it's not against the law. Um, But basically, uh, Prairie and Woods, these two school teachers, won their slander case against the people who had accused them, and it didn't matter. Yeah. You know, the rumors still abounded even after it went up to the House of Lords on appeal and was dismissed. Uh, But it didn't matter. It was too late. As soon as the rumor started, that's when it ended. And so for me, one of – I would say – my quibbles with the film is that this one girl is sort of the linchpin of the whole thing when really the more realistic version, I think, is a girl tells a lie she doesn't fully understand and its consequences are far beyond her control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Like, sorry yeah. to, to just launch in, but how, how do you two feel about Mary? Like, I mean, the, the actress playing her is incredible at being just the worst they just so evil. <laughs> yeah, I literally wrote down in my notes app because um, I was like, I want to like say this in the podcast, but like I'm used to being afraid of teenagers in like daily life <laughs> and in films, but I forgot that you could be scared of like nine year olds. Like she's so mm-hmm. like terrifying, terrifying. She's so manipulative, yeah. so bullying, so like malicious. <laughs> I feel like she's like a birth control ad. <laughs> oh, God. And to be clear, like I to go on the record, like I love kids. I think kids are great. I think kids get a bad rap, but this kid's a fucking monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get it. We get it now. You hate kids. <laughs> yeah, she's such a good villain, and it's like honestly yes. impressive for like. I feel like we're so used to 
kids being like cute in films and that's what makes them like a good actor and mm-hmm. this is just like no you're like a good little monster yeah um she's she has no charm but she has so much screen presence oh another thing i totally love about the villainy of mary is that she's pretty innocent to the true evil that she's done like yeah she's pretty much just psyched to not have to go to school anymore <laughs> and like really isn't aware of the way that she has fully ruined the lives of these two women and her cousin joe yeah. uh what did you think annette i mean i think i think this is the closest they get to like a black and white character mm. where like mm. mary is so exceptionally awful yeah. That you're like in every context. Someone almost, someone must see, yeah. someone someone must notice this or like to me Mary's the hardest character to swallow, but I think she's still like wonderfully executed and like her performance makes you believe that all of the horrible things that happen after could have happened. Like mm. the doting grandmother the, the scared student. Yeah, like, I think exactly like Ali says, I, I don't think that Mary in any way actually understood what she was accusing them of. She just knew that it would garner attention. Mm. Yeah. And I think people's willingness to believe Mary is, again, this criticism of society at large. Totally. That they will take a child's word over an adult and it's something that's completely unbased in reality like there's no actual evidence it's all circumstantial and i guess it's it's that it's it's not that it's bad to believe a child over an adult but it's that it's a reversal of course like the the set standard of this society is believe adults not children except that you know this child tells this outlandish lie but because of the homophobia ingrained in this culture yeah that overrides every other rule in their society yeah like there are definitely cases and instances in which you know you should listen to children and children are know things more than we give them credit <laughs> for but like mm. her just putting the thought in her grandmother's mind yeah was enough to set the the ball in motion exactly yeah and it's funny, I agree with you, Nat, that, like, a more realistic version of the film would have had her, would have had the rumor just do its damage. But I think that's part of, like, heightening the tragedy of Martha's suicide mm-hmm. is that there's kind of this total exoneration in this end and they're kind of both martyrs mm-hmm. yeah. in a way. Uh, can we talk about Joe for a sec? I would love to. <laughs> because I hated Joe initially. Yeah. Because yeah, I was yeah. like, yeah. you're fucking annoying. You're coming in here. Big. Eating, drinking, getting yeah, your meals yeah. at the school for girls just because you want to hang out with your girlfriend, be annoying. But actually, his character is kind of the opposite of Mary, where she's so black and white. But he develops so much depth as the film goes I on. Know. Um, and you can't help but like, I couldn't help but like him, the way that he stood by Karen and Martha against his aunt and against the town, even though it wasn't, you know, the stand that it would have been in 2022 that's like, Pro LGBTQ. Yeah, who cares? It's, yeah, but it's, it's like no, my my fiance would never be gay. My, <laughs> like, my straight my straight wife to be could not have done this. She just told I, me well, she wants I, to get pregnant. What I, what, and I guess not her friend either, but mainly exactly, my straight fiance. Exactly. Well, actually, what I what I think is really Joe's saving grace is that he always does include Martha. Like he he always says, mm-hmm. like I think he says to his aunt, "These are my friends." 
plural. Yeah. yeah. And like, yeah. It, you know, he even says to Martha, like, you know, I like, I always thought you approved of me. Like, I like you. Like, mm-hmm. he, he, he's always trying to, and even when he's like, let's get out of town, Martha, you're coming with yeah. us. No, don't say no anything an about answer. it. You're coming. Yeah. Like, yeah. He, it's, it's a very like positivist, like, I'm going to fix this sort of mentality, but it is, it is kind of touching that he is still like, no, I, I want to help Martha too. Like, no, it's like, mm-hmm. we're all in this together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, her, uh, Karen's relationship with Joe is really interesting because we open the film with her basically living in domestic bliss yeah. with Martha. Yeah. And <laughs> like, they look so happy and they banter about the school and like, in a modern viewing, like, you could 100% see them as being a couple. Totally. And then Joe comes in, and his initial interactions with Karen are completely stilted and antagonistic. Yeah. Where he's and like, so, why haven't you set a date for our wedding? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Karen is hesitant to get married. And that is, again, something that I think tips the scale in favor of her being bi or queer, that she might love Joe, but she might not love Joe that way, specifically. Mm. Or as much. Yeah, and like, you know, it could have been a throuple. Y'all could have had it all. (laughs) I I follow this, uh, this, I've never heard it said throuple, but I really like that. I usually say throuple, but I like throuple. Throuple is more fun, to be honest. I have never heard it said and now I'm like, ooh, I said it wrong on a podcast. No, no, no. no. I, from I now on, it's throuple, as it's far as I'm concerned. I have no scruple um, about saying throuple. Hell yeah. Good, good joke. Good joke. Ba-dum-bum. This is a tangent, but I follow a really cute throuple on TikTok and oh. they, two of them are already married and they just proposed to their third and like, oh. I literally Aww. almost started crying. I was like... I, I love the meme that's like, this is my girlfriend so-and-so, and this is her boyfriend so-and-so. Yeah. <laughs> like, I love that meme. That's, um, I, I, I am down for any poly representation. I just, it's so interesting to see that the very initial portrayals of these two relationships are so starkly different and kind of the opposite of what you would expect. Mm. Like, you would expect Karen to be having these lovey-dovey scenes with her fiance mm-hmm. and it's not they have this tension and it's a fairly like realistic tension yeah. but it is yeah. still how they first introduced that relationship to us and it, it helps set up her separating from him at the end but it's also just it's so starkly different immediately from how she is with martha yeah yeah that's the thing. Yeah, her relationship with Martha just feels so intuitive at the start. And it, it is sort of like an old married couple of like they have this school and the school has problems, but they are a united front. And the school name. The school name is their hyphenated name. <laughs> like a marriage. marriage. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. yeah. Like the other thing I find really funny about the school itself is that on the walls of the girls are the pennants of um, a lot of women's colleges, which like mm-hmm. I think is very normal that that would be true. But I, mm-hmm. I find it really funny because I went to Bryn Mawr and like it's such a queer school yeah, and has been for so everyone, long. Everyone's always like, you'll we'll send our girls to an all-girls school and they we don't have to worry about sex. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> honey. Yeah, and that was such a... Oh, like, you, don't, you don't even know. That was such a real anxiety of parents. Like it was actually really funny because... 
Um, some parents really did send their girls to Bryn Mawr because they were like, oh, we love it. She's just going to be studying. <laughs> <laughs> or, but like the flip side of that, and like I never toured, but this was like a common knowledge for people who gave tour guides, was that there would be a lot of anxious parents worried about their straight girl staying straight. <laughs> and that anxiety would come in the form of questions like, where are the boys? How are the, how is the dating life? Like, where do girls go to meet? What, how, what percentage of the school is gay? You know, like questions that like, and it's, I don't know. So it's just really interesting to me that like, um, to see this anxiety in, in an all women's space. Cause mm-hmm. like, that is like a real anxiety that happens in an all women's space, unless you're not homophobic, in which case it's no just anxiety. like this place yeah. rules. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I love yeah. it here actually. Um, yeah. I never picked up on that detail. I love that. Yeah. Good eye. Uh, I, immediately. I was like, yeah. well, Lee, boom, <laughs> Renmar, boom. <laughs> like, <laughs> are you, are you East Coast? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. That, that's probably it. I feel like a lot of the like big women's schools are out East. So True, like, like the, that's the, just not really what I was raised with, but I love that detail. I'm so glad you got that. Oh, totally. That makes sense though. It is such an East coast thing. That was another mm-hmm. funny thing about Bryn Mawr is that the number of West coast people we had who attended the school, like they all knew each other. Like they would find each other because <laughs> they'd be yeah. like, cause it was like a huge culture shock for them. To have to seasons one. for one thing. The seasons. Yeah. And then also I think sometimes, I think sometimes on the West coast, there was this, idea that like all girls hanging out together is going to be like riot girl energy mm. and and then like <laughs> brain is not that energy anyways that was like a really random tangent no but, um, i loved it i enjoyed it so much though annette did we actually get to hear about like what the movie meant to you when you first saw it like what it meant to you you know so i guess when i first saw it like i I loved the class that I was taking it for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is like, this is a tangent, but like, <laughs> uh, people would take that class as like an extracurricular. And you mm. could tell the people who were taking it who were in film studies and love film and the people who were just taking it for credit. True. And one of these guys who was very clearly a jock <laughs> and didn't really seem to be there for film studies, mm-hmm. um, he did his presentation on Billy Elliot. And mm. he opened his presentation being like, so I'm going to be honest, I picked this movie because it seemed really easy to do, and I hadn't <laughs> seen it before, and I watched it, and I loved it. All of oh. you should watch it. It's That's so really cute. good. Like, he was so enthusiastic about the movie, and I think about it all the time. Like That's this, so sweet. This jock who you would assume would be, like, putting in minimal effort to uh gender and sexuality's presentation was like, this is why this movie fucks. Mm. <laughs> it was so good. Um, that's, that's my little Billy Elliot tangent. Um, <laughs> but like, I loved that class and that's, that's like the vibe of it. It was like exploration and genuinely being critical of media within its context. Mm-hmm. And like, I love that environment. I'm a massive nerd and I loved school. So like that sort of thing. I was like, I wish I could be in this class all day. I fucking love Aww. it. Um, and so like, I was interested in the movie when I picked it, but it wasn't necessarily something where I was like, Oh, I have to watch this. Mm, and sure. then when I had finished it, I was so grateful that I happened to stumble upon this movie because it's like I've said, it's, it's this time capsule and yeah. I think 
it's something that no one really our age has heard of mostly yeah. like it's not yeah. a common knowledge movie and despite having powerhouses like Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine like yeah. and James Garner frankly yeah we just need to pause really quick I mean like Shirley MacLaine is so beautiful oh my god yes oh my god <laughs> like it's oh tough because Audrey Hepburn is obviously like Audrey Hepburn but mm-hmm. Shirley MacLaine is so fucking pretty dude it's She's wild like, perfect yeah. Oh my god. I mean like, one of oh one my of my god. favorite movies, which we'll eventually do as a Patreon bonus, is The Apartment, which <laughs> is her and Jack Lemon. And it's just mm. she, it throughout every scene of that movie, mm-hmm. she is just captivating. Yeah, I, I adore her. And her performance is like one of the core elements of this movie that makes it work. Absolutely. But yeah, when I first watched it, I knew it was sad. Yeah. But I didn't really I didn't expect to be as moved as I was. Mm. And um, I mean, I lived at home during undergrad because fuck paying for housing. Am I right? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, fair enough. So, like, I was watching it in my my family living room, and my mom just walked by when the movie was finished, and I was just openly crying. Mm. And like, I went and vented to her about the movie and how sad it was and how upset mm. it made me. And like, I think these are all important emotions to feel like it's intentionally a tragic story and you know it speaks to how well it was executed at least in my opinion that like watching it what 40 50 years later I'm still so exceptionally moved by the tragedy and the fact that you know these queer people feel that they had no choice but yeah. to live in misery or to die. And yeah. it's that condemnation of that thought in a time where everyone believed that. And so to have a movie that, albeit subtly, goes against this, I think it's, it's so brave. And it really, it really affected me at the time. And I think, I think the first time that I watched it, I more saw Karen as straight. Mm -hmm. And then the more I thought on the movie over the past few years and having rewatched it, I could very easily see the bisexual reading of it. And then her Karen's journey is much more one of like fear of being discovered because Martha's always treated as the obvious subject, like suspect. Yeah. Yeah. She's the one her her aunt calls her unnatural. Yes. So it's always Martha that gets these things tagged to her. Whereas Karen doesn't have that outward antagonism. She hers is more association. Mm-hmm. Like I think even though they're both being accused of being in a relationship, there is so much more pressure on Martha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think I think in some ways that's representative of like straight passing privilege quote unquote Mm -hmm. that people think that bi people have yeah and that's not necessarily well addressed Mm -hmm. um so i like i don't love that element but i do think it's a part of it for a reason Mm. like karen is not as obviously a target um but having having rewatched it I I definitely get this undercurrent that Karen loves Martha so much more deeply 
than Joe. Mm. And like, she's hesitant to marry Joe and she'll say like, Oh, let's have a baby in a year. And it's like this weird, it'll fix things. Yeah. It'll be an outward sign, but it's not marriage. Like it's, it's very odd. But as soon as she calls it's such it off, a funny Joe, things to say too. let's have a baby in a year. Yeah. yeah. Like, what do you like, mean? Do you mean you want to have like, sex in three months? And then yeah, have a baby I was thinking about that too. I was thinking about that too. <laughs> Well, what's so, what's so interesting yeah. to me about Karen is her story is sort of one of tightening circles where it's mm-hmm. at first it's, you know, this outer rim of the parents are saying that she is queer. Then it's moving inward where it's like Martha's aunt who knows her won't show up for the trial. And it's this mm-hmm. particular woman is saying it. And then her aunt not showing up. Fuck her. It uh, fills me with such rage when she just walks and she's I like, hello, know. girls. I'm like, I want to murder you. Yeah, I love I love that Martha just says, I hate you. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, yes. And she should. Yes. But anyway, uh, but then it's Joe finally admits that he has doubts and wants to doubts. ask. Yeah. Um, and then it's Martha herself is saying, no, it is true. I am in love with you. And it's just getting tighter and tighter and tighter on her until she has to face the question herself of how does she feel? Yeah. And yeah. I think ultimately the answer is partially in that she she says when when the lie is revealed, what she says to Martha is we can find work now. It's not that, you know, we're you know safe or it's never been true. It's just that, well, we can pass and get jobs and live together still. Well, that's a big thing in her verbiage is that yeah. Karen consistently says it's not true. Right. She never says we aren't what you think we are. Right. She says it's not true. The lie is not true. Yeah. Yes. Because they haven't been lovers. Yeah, exactly. That's what's yeah. so funny. Yeah. That's what's so funny is the accusation isn't even like they like women. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that they, they uh, have been having sex at the school. Yeah. That yeah, that they kissed and yeah. they haven't. So yeah. Karen is consistently like, this isn't true. Yeah. This specific event didn't happen. And I think that's very interesting yeah. because it so easy to have just written lines that like I'm not gay. We're not like that. How could you think of me that way? Yeah. Like, yeah. I yeah. think that's very intentional. And and there's that great scene she has with Joe where she says uh, like words mean different things now. I think uh, is yeah. what she said. Or words yes. are changing their yeah. meanings. You know, wife, baby, husband, mm-hmm. love, child. You know. Yeah, and it's it's this wonderful queering of the English language. Mm-hmm. I do think the strongest piece of evidence in favor of like her being by is that she never reconciles with Joe. Even when she Mm -hmm. sends him away, it's so strange because it's this big dramatic, you know, did you, you know, you've never asked me, asked me, you know, like ask me if you think we were lovers. And then she doesn't even let him ask, you know, she, and then she says, no, of course not. And it's just so like, I don't know, I guess it was a little hard for me to believe that she would, be that shocked or that offended that he might have wondered, you know? I like, I don't take it as an offense so much as it, it, it's this breakdown of trust between the two of them that's right, irrevocable. Right. That he that that he has questioned her faithfulness as well. Like yeah, that's the thing. It's yeah. like regardless of who the other person is, it would sure. have been a violation of their relationship. Sure. Um, but yeah, that's it. I've always taken it. I not always. <laughs> I keep saying always. I took it as uh, I took it as uh, more just that you know this this breach between them has occurred and can't be repaired. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's also a way of Karen 
getting Joe to leave, that, you know, it's an easy thing to pin it on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's kind of forcing the issue because he does have that doubt. And I think it's significant to discuss that if you're in a couple like that. But it's it's also this like he's kind of blindly hoping it isn't true because yeah. he may honestly feel the same way as everyone else if yeah. they were queer. Yeah. And also it's it's sort of like the, the I feel like the closest thing to a right answer in that situation is it doesn't matter if it is, you know, mm-hmm. like it's really a moot point to me. I love you. Um, but mm-hmm. it did matter to him. You know, it, he yeah. did care and he did want to know. Yeah. And to me, I think something that's such a big indicator to the potentiality of Karen being queer is that she puts off marriage with Joe and she isn't for leaving when Joe suggests it. Mm-hmm. But then once Joe leaves and Martha has her reveal, Karen immediately is like, let's go. You and me, let's go. Like she yeah. is so ready to make this big jump with Martha yeah. in a way that she wasn't comfortable making with Joe, who she'd been with for years and was asking for it. Yeah. 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 I think that that, that is a really, at the very least, it's evidence that her relationship with Martha is so deep, you know, yeah. it, it, whether it's friendship or romance or, you know, and, and regardless of her sexuality, it's clear like Martha is the most important person in her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I I was thinking about the end, which I think the thing she seems most excited about with Joe is having this baby in mm. 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's interesting to me that they don't reconcile in the end because I kind of just see it as a rejection of like being part like like there's something about wanting a baby and wanting to start a family that's so uh optimistic about like the society you live in Mm -hmm. and the culture you live in and just kind of like yeah because and and, like the way that she doesn't reconcile with him and then it just walks off alone Mm -hmm. and doesn't have that dream anymore it just feels like she's totally disillusioned with like society as a concept she's like society's failed me this like quote-unquote community that uh that I like spent years building with this school mm-hmm. turned on me in a second. So fuck all you people. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Do either of you? Mm, no, no, go ahead. Go sorry. Not, not, not. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, <laughs> not, 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 not. <laughs> I was going to ask for final points. So if, if you had something right off of that, go for that first. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> You're good. Oh, I know what it was. Go for it. Yes. Um, I was just kind of like a closing point anyways, but like I I think the fact that Karen's sexuality could be read either way and you still feel that heartbreak, mm. I think that speaks to the strength of the relationship that they built between Martha and Karen and yeah. the sympathy that they created for both of yeah. them. So I think, yeah. you know, you I think it's very easy to read it either way. And I think it it's very easy to argue either side. And I don't think either side is quote unquote correct. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which in some ways is more enjoyable. Like it's, it's art, baby. It don't have to be right or wrong. You know, just it's let not, it baby. be, man. <laughs> 
Ali, uh, any final thoughts? Um, you know, I think I'm looking forward to watching this movie again one day down the line. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. Final thoughts. Um, no. I have a, a final piece of trivia okay. uh, that I I really want to make sure we get because so I I am a scrupulous viewer of the opening credits, especially of older films, because I always am hoping I'll see somebody who later became famous in like mm-hmm. some minor nice. role on the crew yeah. or something. And it mm-hmm. paid dividends this time. Ooh. Doubly so because the assistant editor. Of this Gross. film <laughs> was Hal Ashby, who went on to direct Harold and Maude, The Last Detail, and Being wow. There, which starred yeah. Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> so just wow. for, for Annette and me, just a little assistant editor uh, life goal, <laughs> you can go on to be Hal Ashby. There, there is upward <laughs> mobility in this industry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this society functions correctly and appropriately and talent is recognized and don't look up how Hal Ashby's career ended. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, that's not actually the end of the show because uh, as I'm sure you all are intimately aware by now, every episode ends with a round of Fuck, Mary kill now given oh how heartbreaking this movie <laughs> is i think we can be kind to ourselves this week and if y'all are down play a round of mary fuck friend zone with uh I, it's crazy how much more i love fairy fuck friend zone. <laughs> <laughs> i'm just like my quaker roots can't stand the <laughs> theoretical killing of fictional characters you say that but there are there are occasions where you're like yeah i'd kill that motherfucker that's true that's true there's we come across some shady ass figures yeah <laughs> but yeah so i figured uh mary fuck friend zone with our main trio of karen martha and joe mm. what do y'all think okay I'm- I'm marrying Martha. I'm marrying Martha, obviously. (laughs) How do you not marry Martha and take her away to a beautiful... West Village apartment. No, you know where you got to go? Paris. You got to go to Paris. What I'm learning from reading a lot about the Regency and the early... And the First World War period, if you're queer, you got to book it to Paris ASAP. Hell yeah. Sounds about right. (laughs) Serve James Baldwin well. (laughs) Um, So you're you're marrying Martha, both of you. (laughs) Annette, what's your next move? Um, I'm going to go ahead and fuck Karen. Audrey Hepburn is a goddamn tunner. A smoke show. Like, goddamn. She's that type of beauty where you're like, how? <laughs> um, for me, it's going to be Cousin Joe. <laughs> you're going to fuck Joe. <laughs> I just feel like he's so loyal, you know? I'm throw like, listen. <laughs> I feel like he can be so petty, though. He can. He is petty. That's why you don't marry him. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. But I'm more in the mood of of friend zoning Joe. I feel like Joe could get on my nerves right quick. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to friend zone Karen just because I feel like she needs some time solo. You know, (laughs) she's to figure herself out. I respect this. You know, she needs to eat, pray, love. <laughs> Allie's like, work on yourself first I yeah. and then come back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I actually, it's, it's a perfect uh, split because I'm going to marry Karen, although in like a very queer open relationship way where it's like, hey, you need to figure some things out. That's cool. I'm, all, I'm there with you. I'm going to fuck Joe because young James Garner is a stud, like. 
Jesus He's a stud. And he's kind of dumb, but very loyal. Like, yeah, like that's all I need. I don't need smart for fuck. And then he's I'm, a doctor. I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna friend zone Martha just because I don't think like it's pretty solid that she is just like she is gay. So like I'm not gonna mm-hmm. force her into any situation that she's not down for. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that's that. That's so respectful. Oh my god. Yeah. Hey, listen, I'm listen. a classy dude. That's why we play Mary Fuck Kill. Uh <laughs> friend zone. Friend zone. Friend zone, friend zone, friend zone. Uh, you know who else is a classy dude? The girl listening to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for listening to Snails and Oysters, your bi-weekly, bi-coastal, bisexual movie podcast. And a huge, huge thank you to Annette Rainey for joining us on this week's episode. It was such a pleasure to have you, Annette. Thank you for having yeah, me. Annette. It was absolutely wonderful. You're welcome back anytime. The last thing I'll say, Annette, is I knew nothing about this movie. And I literally thought this was a children's movie. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> like until until I looked up the children's hour on Amazon where I rented it for three ninety nine. I was like, I because uh, yeah. So, but thank you for thank you also for not choosing a children's movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that can be a little harder, and it, it's yeah. a little weirder to introduce Fuck Mary Killing too. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Just, the, just like scrap the game. Yeah. The, the, the last no. children's movie I think we did was Mulan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, which is all adults, a little different. You know, yeah. Yeah, 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 all adults, yeah. All, ad- all animated adults. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, but thank you for having me, and thank you for letting me talk about this heartbreakingly beautiful movie. And it's um, absolutely it's a difficult one. So I think yeah. I think everyone having kind of a different view on it was was great because it's it's it can be a very divisive movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. That's it. I always say my favorite episodes are the ones where we don't agree. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, thank you again for listening. And if you enjoyed this show, please uh, you know like, subscribe, share this episode with friends. Uh, and if you really, really like our show, head over to patreon.com slash snails oysters. You can sign up for $5 a month uh, to support the show, get bonus episodes every month, and to get my film diary where I review everything that I watch that isn't for the show. And if you sign up for Patreon, the guest before me volunteered <laughs> to give you a lap dance. Um, I will not be continuing that favor, but I will badly beatbox in the background to make that lap dance even better. Perfect. Wow. <laughs> this, this is just going to be a running thing now. Every guest is going to contribute to this multimedia presentation of yes, a lap dance. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm we have be- to convert our Patreon into like a workers co-op of all our guests. <laughs> no lap dance is complete without some stork-looking white girl in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it adds it adds a layer, you know. It I'm adds, just it adds to the <laughs> I think what it does it makes sure it doesn't get too sexual, <laughs> or does it make it more Extremely. sexual? Yeah. Uh, all right. Thank you to Billy Libby for our extremely, it's the bisexual lighting of theme music. Um, <laughs> and thank you to Abby Austin for our really, really wonderful cover art. You can find both their social media handles in the description, along with Allie's, my own, and Annette's. And of course, Snails and Oysters is at Snails Oysters on Twitter. Feel free to shoot us either episode ideas, your take on this week's episode, your opinion on Mary Fuck Kill, or if we should permanently <laughs> switch to Mary Fuck Friend Zone to save Allie's mental health. Uh, <laughs> But, of course, the biggest thank you of all goes to you, our listeners, for being a A bi ally. ally. (laughs) Annette, you've never been on the show before. It's clear we're joking when we say that, right? No, it's really genuine. And I just, (laughs) I feel like, um. Fuck. 
I just feel a little insulted, to be honest. <laughs> I, I actually feel like you shouldn't release my episode anymore. Oh, no. I just, oh, you shouldn't have sure signed that appearance release. <laughs> I didn't sign shit, bitch. I never signed shit because I forget in my Gmail inbox. <laughs> Well, I'd say you could sue us for everything we own, but we don't own shit, so. <laughs> Mood, that L.A. life. I own, a, I just got a new water bottle. Oh, I'll take it. I'll take <laughs> it. No, it's really good. $15 from the L.L. in Maine, and it is it's delightful. I'm just going to, like, have... slowly fade out this conversation as the <laughs> music plays. <laughs>